Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right, guys, today we are going to talk about this idea of what types of assets we might want to hold in different types of accounts. Obviously, as investors, um, some investors have one investment account. It might be their company 401k, but many investors have multiple accounts, um, taxable accounts, IRAs, uh, 401k plans, um, and, and maybe even 529s and custodial accounts. So what we wanted to do today is, is talk about this idea of asset location. So what assets are potentially best to place in what types of accounts. And, and like we, we, we were just talking before, there's no, there's a, there's kind of no one right answer here, but we can get at, I think, directionally, um, what, what types of assets make sense for certain types of accounts. So, so, um, Matt, let's sort of start at a high level, which is, you know, can you give us maybe flush out some of the things I said with asset location and, and why is it important for investors to consider? So asset allocation is basically what you're invested in or what we're invested in. Asset location is where you're invested in it. So the common parlance in um, asset allocation is like stocks, bonds, cash, and alternatives or various things. And that's asset allocation, what we're invested in. But then if we should hold it in our brokerage account or our after-tax after investment account, or if we should own it in a retirement account, or if we should own it in a Roth or what, it's asset location. And when we think about where we're saving money to or where we're pulling money from, the conversation about asset location is how do we think about the, the actual returns or the, actually, the actual money we're gonna take and use for some purpose after taxes, et cetera. How do we think about that logically in the planning process? I would think at a high level, you've basically got three types of accounts you want to consider here. Your taxable, your tax deferred, and your tax exempt, or you know, your taxable, your IRA, and your Roth IRA. Just at a high level, I mean, obviously we talked about before this, there's no exact answer to this, but how would you think about in general, like the overall strategy for allocating money across those three? So the strategy is always going to come back. And part of what I love about the asset location conversation is it really forces financial planning onto the investment process. Because if you're like an endowment and you don't have to think about like taxes in the same way that an individual or a private investor does, you're not really thinking about this. You're just focused on returns. But when you're an individual and you have your taxable investment accounts and your tax deferred accounts, and then you have your tax deferred and tax free account. Now you have to think about, or you have the option to think about how's money going in and coming out of these things. So. The short answer is there's different vehicles, there's different strategies as they go in and out of those things. There's tax frictions. 
And the average person wants to work with somebody or figure it out for themselves, how they're going to understand and make sense of those frictions. So at a high level, are there really two things here? So there's sort of, what am I holding, like stocks, bonds, et cetera. And then the other thing is, am I taking money in or putting money out of these accounts? Like those two things kind of combine together into a strategy here. Is that, does that say it well? That actually, that says it pretty well. It's, it's what we own and where we own it. And what are the consequences of it going in and out, both of what we own, buy, sell, and in and out, in or out of an IRA, deductible on the way in, ordinary income on the way out. It all plays in. We'll put this chart in. It's from, it's from a Michael Kitsis article, and it's called Asset Location Priority List. And it, it's a really good chart because on one axis, you have expected return. And on the other axis, you have tax efficiency. So those are sort of the two factors determining where I locate things. And it's, it's a smile chart. So it starts high, goes low, and comes back up. Um, can, can you just talk a little bit about what we're seeing and what it tells us about asset location? Yes, and I love the smiley, especially from Michael Kitsis's smiling face too here. So this is all about priority. And in a very similar way to our, how do you prior, prioritize your goals in the goals-based planning episode, we're talking about how do you prioritize the asset allocation and the asset location of different investments? So when you're looking at this chart, what you're seeing is over to the left of the chart, we're in a taxable account where our expected return is up. Uh, we really want to care about the tax efficiency of what we're owning. And we're thinking about things that we'll, I'm sure, talk more about this in a second. We're talking about like the yield on those investments and the tax consequences of the strategy by which we're holding or investing in. As we get into the middle of the smiley face there, so the bottom of the smile, we're basically saying if the expected return is really low, go in the time machine, jump in the DeLorean and go a year ago and put your money in a savings account. You're getting 0%. So the tax efficiency of the savings account earning zero, it doesn't really matter because there's just not that much income and it doesn't matter if I buy or sell the money market that's paying me zero. But then as I get out to the right side of this curve, tax deferred and tax exempt, well, now if my expected return is high again, well, I don't care as much about uh, the tax efficiency of the strategy that I'm holding, but I still have to be aware of it when it's coming out. So keyword in this priority, and it's just like you have your priority of saving. This is kind of the priority of how we spend, how we choose what to sell to spend from. I want to talk about some examples here because it seems to me like if at a high level, at least not considering asset allocation, but only thinking about location, I'd want to take my income generating assets and I'd want to put them in my tax deferred account. So I'm not paying tax on the income. But how do you sort of think about that process for things like bonds? All right, let's let I'm going to flip the flip the tables on this one and let's go through it and see if you can unpack the logic. So let's have some fun with this. So yield and like tax drag of the strategy. So when you say bonds, let's throw out a specific bond example and let's deconstruct where this fits on kind of the smiley face. Track. How about just like a straight government bond fund to start? Okay. So let's say you have a straight government bond fund. Let's use, let's use like BIL first, the short-term T-bill like ETF. So what, what are we thinking in terms of like yield first on that? Not exactly what the yield is, but how would you think about yield on that and how it's taxed? Yeah. So I mean, right now there, I mean, actually there is some yield there, which is actually good because uh, for many, many years there was not. Um, so yeah, you know, you might be getting three, 4% now on your, on your government bond fund. Okay, so you're getting three, four, five percent, and how is that being taxed if you're an individual investor in a taxable account? In taxes, regular income. Okay, and like on BIL, like how much is that thing gonna zig and zag in a given month or quarter or whatever? 
Yeah, no, T-bill is not much at all. Obviously, if I'm going up down up the duration spectrum, it's going to go move a lot. Okay. So when we're looking at it, and we're looking at it on the chart, like it's somewhere probably to like the middle to like the left of it. Because it's not going to zig and zag a lot, and we're just thinking about the consequences of the taxable income, like in your plan, a little bit of income with a good amount of price stability, like not a bad thing. We don't have to obsess too much over the strategy itself. Make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Now, so, but if I'm buying TLT or something, that, that's a different story. Right. So now flip this. So now let's say that like you're actually putting a trade on to like put duration in the portfolio and it's, it's a trade, it's a view. Now, well, where's that go if that's a trade and a view? Because now it's not just about yield, it's about your strategy. So like think through that out loud for a second. Yeah. So I'm thinking of if it's a view, well, it depends on, I guess, on how I'm holding TLT. If I'm holding TLT because I want like a long-term allocation to long-term bonds, that that's one thing. If I'm selling it, you know, now I'm generating taxable gains. So now I'm, I'm thinking more about IRAs and stuff like that because I don't want to take the taxable gains and take the tax on them. I mean, I don't know if that's the right process, but that's kind of the way I would think through it. We're scraping on it. It's the idea that like the yield is something you can't avoid. So if I'm going to hold something with a strategy or passively, like the yield is a reality. So how am I being taxed on the yield? What are my assumptions based on like the, the after-tax return on the yield, depending where I'm holding it? But then the strategy itself, if I'm actively trading duration with TLT, well, now I got to think about capital gains too. So it's yield plus this additional tax drag. And that's going to inform how I'm prioritizing. Um, like if, if, if I'm day trading all day in a taxable account, there's tax consequences of that. If I'm day trading all day in a retirement account, both of these stereotypes have their own problems. But I think about the tax consequences in a totally different way. Yeah. And as you think about this, you realize how many moving parts there are here. There's like, what is the yield of the thing? A am I trading the thing? You know, am I removing money and adding money from the account? Like there's, you know, what's the long-term return of what I'm investing in? There, there's so many moving parts. You could see how this is, can be a very, very challenging thing. A very, very challenging thing. And I, I just want to mention this here too. Like this is part of when we're building portfolios and doing asset allocation work, most people build portfolios as asset allocators with capital market assumptions. It's also important to look at capital market assumptions with like a tax adjusted capital market assumption too, because like what's the tax adjusted yield on both this asset class and then also the strategies by which we seek to grab that asset class's returns. And that's going to produce not just your efficient frontier in terms of risk versus return across your portfolio, but a tax efficient frontier across like tax efficient risk and return on that portfolio. Let's talk about equities for a second, because it seems to me like there's two different sort of ways you could handle equities. You know, I could have my ETFs that I hold for the long term, or you could do something like we do, you know, which is where we run active strategies and we're actually trading in and out of stocks. Um, you know, we have a system where we try to make sure we're only taking long-term gains, but nonetheless, we are taking gains. And so I would think that has a big impact on asset location. So can you talk a little bit about that? Back to strategy again. So if I own equities and if I own just like the dividend yielding stock people on the internet that exist out there in the world. So like if you're holding stuff passively to collect dividend income, you know how the dividend income is taxed. And it's worth mentioning right here too that a lot of it's just like, what are you willing and not willing to be surprised by? So if I have like a high dividend yield ETF that I'm holding it passively, or if I have shares of McDonald's that I inherited from my grandfather with like a low basis and I just get the dividend on it or something, like whatever that is, you might go, okay, this is a predictable income stream and dividend that I know how I'm taxed. What I probably don't want in a taxable account is like a high turnover strategy uh, in actively managed mutual fund or fund that's some non-passive like ETF structure or like an SMA, something like you guys run. If I hold that in a taxable account, I have a crazy year. 
I could end up with short-term capital gains or or long-term capital gains out of my control and get that surprise. So after the yield, you got to solve for what are the tax consequences of the strategy and what's the reality of the asset class that strategy is invested in with those taxable consequences tied to them. Back to your equity point, and we'll touch on this, I'm sure, in a little more detail, but like uh, long-term capital gains and equity makes a lot of sense when you're taking risk exposure down to pay for consumption, but it makes a heck of a no sense when you don't need the money for something to just pay a lot of gains because you have high turnover. You know, I, I generally tend to, if we're talking to a, a new investor and they have the option to invest with taxable money or through a retirement account, you know, we tend to try to lean towards the retirement assets just because, um, you know, there won't be any tax consequences, um, at least without the management of the actual strategy. Um, and, but it doesn't always shake out that way. I mean, you know, a lot of investors have a lot more money usually in taxable accounts. And so we certainly manage money for, um, you know, people that have those types of taxable accounts. And to your point, Matt, about the surprises, you know, I think back to our sort of experience in history and, 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 uh, when we were buying at the low in 2020, cause our strategies are set up sort of to have this rebalancing process, you know, getting into stocks in March and April of 2020, when the market was down 35%. And then, you know, the 2021 tax bill that came due was a, a big surprise for a lot of investors. I mean, we tried to prepare our investors, but we had done, you know, cause we were buying stocks that were at such a discount that those investors, and when the tax bill came due, it was kind of a surprise for, for many people. Um, the other thing, just thinking out loud here, I'll ask you or Jack to comment on this is, you know, in thinking about like the 60, 40 portfolio, right? Like 60% stocks, 40% bonds, you buy low cost ETFs and you like let it ride. Well, one of the things that we uh, have done and been we've been thinking about a lot and we have strategies that do this are sort of trying to find alternatives to your typical 60-40 portfolio. But the alternatives that we have developed, they're not necessarily tax efficient. It's like allocating or rotating among asset classes, using momentum, using correlation, using trend following. But it's, it's you know, they're not very tax efficient strategies. So if you're trying to develop a, a strategy that is an alternative to the 60-40, you know, where you might end up um, costing yourself a little bit is on the tax side of things. Yeah. And that's where, and that's where asset location probably becomes really important for those strategies. Cause you know, going back to Justin's point, if you're going to do an alternative to the 60, 40, and you're going to put something like commodities in a portfolio, well, look at the long-term return of commodities. It's probably not something you want in there all the time. And so, you know, we, we've chose to use momentum because that's what we could find in academic research in terms of how to rotate among them. But anytime you use momentum, momentum comes with turnover. So that's a good example of strategies where we would try to put them like in an IRA account when we can because they're not as tax efficient as the 60-40 portfolio, although they have a different purpose of doing well in types of environments where the 60-40 might not. It all goes back to that that CCBS, the calendar, the cash flow, and the balance sheet, and understanding that in that cash flow is where your frictions happen. And so as I'm structuring my balance sheet with asset allocation and asset location, I'm thinking in terms of the strategies that I have, the asset allocation as strategies run. So if it's, if it's an old stock or a commodity strategy with like high turnover, then I want to put my capital market assumptions and then my after-tax market assumptions and decide, do I want the potential surprises from the variability of this strategy to show up in my current year cash flow or do I want more control over it? 
Because if I do the trend following commodity strategy in my IRA, well, I don't really care what the intra-year turnover is. Um, if I do it in my taxable account, that intra-year turnover, I might have a surprise year full of gains or a surprise year full of losses or whatever else. Inside the IRA, I at least have the choice when I'm redeeming from maybe that strategy where that money's coming in as ordinary income, uh, again, into my, into my cash flow. So I know what I'm more in control of the slippage or the frictions as a result of the tax consequences based on where I've located the strategy. We've talked about taxable versus IRA, and I want to kind of dig into the, the sub part of the IRA here, which is we've got the Roth IRA and we've got the traditional IRA. It would seem to me at a high level, not knowing a ton about this, that, you know, if, if I want to be Peter Thiel, basically, and I want to get the billion dollar, you know, startups into my IRA, I probably want to put those in the Roth IRA because I can withdraw them without any tax. So it would seem like I'd want to put my biggest return things in the Roth IRA, but correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, how would you think through that? So uh, I'll keep harboring on it because this is the connection to financial planning. So yes, you want to put like the higher risk things like in the Roth, if your purpose is to not have to pay capital gains on it. And probably if your purpose is like not necessarily to spend that money either in your lifetime or you want tax efficient transfer to the next generation. Because if the purpose of your, your Roth on your balance sheet for your cash flow is to make sure that you've got like a middling tax year and you want to take something out, well, you probably shouldn't have a bunch of startups in your Roth if you needed to cover tax flow and you're trying to handle, um, you're trying to handle the tax bill like inside of the year. So in one sense, if you're optimizing for later in life or a future generation or just to maximize the after-tax growth potential, yeah, go get crazy in your Roth. On the other hand, there's a very strong argument where somebody who needs the Roth to supplement tax-free income in maybe maybe retirement, maybe between like 65 and 73 when the RMD kicks in and they don't want to upset their Medicare bills and whatever else, they might want cash in the Roth because they want that money coming out to be stable and not as variable as the the, the Peter Thiel scenario. Unfortunately for me, the uh, billion-dollar Roth IRA may not be in my future anyway, so this may not be a problem I need to call you up for. <laughs> you can aim uh, aim for the Mitt Romney uh, billion or you know hundred million dollar IRA. Well, I do. Uh, you know, for I just using like me as an example here. I'm interested in your um, thoughts. Like I, I invested in a like an, I have an angel investment that I did through a self directed IRA. That's where the that's where my capital was. So that's where the resources were to make this investment. Um, but I've also have some investments in commercial real estate through the self-directed IRA. And I know that with real estate, you know, when you're investing with taxable money, you get like the tax benefit of, I think, the depreciation um, that comes through that you that you save on tax. So, I, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, maybe you know more about this because I've always done the real estate investing through my IRA. So I haven't gotten a tax benefit, but most of the guys that are in on these deals are definitely doing it with, with taxable money. So there's two things that we have to call out on this. And we do, at some point, we do a lot of this stuff because we do a lot with privates and alternatives and things like this. And it's different if you're, again, an entity, like if you're a pension or an endowment or a charitable institution, you're, the reality of tax is different than if you're, you know, you, you and your, your IRA making these investments. So the couple things you have to be aware of with privates and everything else is you have to be aware of like uh, GPLP structures. You have to be aware of UBTI. And you have to be aware of, in some cases, like you want to be 
a lot of commercial real estate. Won't say anything about B-REIT and their, their recent adventures in, in that land. But like there's, there's real tax advantages of doing it in a taxable account because they're returning principal to you like in those dividend payments. So they kind of like juice up the yield with the tax consequences because they're bringing money back to you where you get the benefits of depreciation. And um, each strategy and each structure will actually impact the advantages in a tax, tax location perspective. Know what that is. And also know there are some like foibles, like master limited partnerships inside of retirement accounts that produce a K-1. And now you might have UBTI. And even though it's in a tax deferred account, you know, historically, you might have to still pay tax on those returns. Cuts both directions. Got to know your strategies and how they're treated. I want to get back to this uh, asset location versus asset allocation, because I'm wondering, how do you think about the steps in that process? Like, it seems like if you focused on asset location, you could end up in a weird scenario where you have like, you know, a bunch of high yielding bonds in, in your IRAs and like all your long-term growth monies in tax efficient ETFs, and that's all in your taxable account. And maybe that's not what you want from an asset allocation standpoint. So I'm just wondering, like, you know, thinking about can you can you get yourself into a trap here where basically you've got the wrong stuff in the wrong accounts because you're focusing too much on the taxes? Yes. How's that? <laughs> yes. So you tongue in cheek, but I, I mean this, you know, in all seriousness, like you shouldn't over, you shouldn't optimize for stupid. You shouldn't over optimize and like end up in a stupid place. And uh, Peter Mladina. M-L-A-D-I-N-A. We can throw some links to stuff or um, show some of this at, at Northern Trust. He's excellent on this. Uh, Michael Kittis has great resources for this on the website. But something I learned from uh, Peter Medina was they, they have some rules for this to help guide those principles. And we follow these in our practice as well. And it's like step one is you're always trying to minimize ordinary income. So you're going, if, um, if I have money coming in, from my investments, I, I want to be aware of ordinary income that I'm pay ta paying tax on. I don't want extraordinary income just to pay tax on that I'm not living on or using for consumption in some way. So be aware of the ordinary income you're generating. The next piece is minimizing your short-term capital gain. And that boils down to those like trading strategies like we talked about. So if I have a super active strategy in a taxable account, the surprise of the, of the short-term capital gains, because those get taxed as ordinary income too, in most cases. And that can throw me off in a year if I'm not anticipating. The third thing is you want to maximize your net returns via location. So that's saying take the highly active strategy and put it in a tax-deferred account if there's an advantage to doing so. And that's kind of like your, your question there a little bit. You want to know where you're putting different things on a way that makes sense for what you need them to do. Then number four is you want to realize, and this is so important, you want to realize your long-term capital gain when you're spending for consumption. So the idea is like, if I have highly appreciated stock or something in a taxable account and I'm spending for consumption, I don't want to necessarily take from something that I'm going to pay ordinary income on, but I can pay a lower long-term capital gains rate by doing that. So if you are going to pay taxes, try to pay the smaller amount of taxes where you can to not tip your scale. And what, what Medina calls like the gold standard is you want to be looking at this holistically where you're actually saying, what's the after-tax portfolio optimization? What's my efficient frontier for risk and return across all of my accounts? And then what's my tax-efficient frontier with my, my 
after-tax capital market assumptions of these strategies to say, how am I solving for the cash flow problem that I am solving for? Unique to every individual, every family, every household. If you're trying to pass money on to kids or spend it in your lifetime, it's your thumbprint on how you want to test this and say, how do I not paint myself into that corner? Do you guys use Monte Carlo simulation at all here? Like it would seem like this would be a good fit for it and that there's a lot of different things you could play with. I mean, you could set up different asset locations and then, you know, look at a variety of different patterns of market returns and say, you know, where in most cases, where do I end up better? I mean, is, is that something you do here? We do. And I know this is close to your heart. Can't believe we've gone this long without mentioning that. Sequence, sequence of return risks and like withdrawal sequence risks are not there not maybe two sides of the same coin, I don't know. But it's this idea of you can use Monte Carlo simulations just like you can for sequence of returns risk to understand what's how variable or how volatile is my strategy. Then we can also use Monte Carlo to model uh, withdrawal sequence risk, which is to understand that I'm pulling stuff out with various bouncing around of account values and prices to say like, how sustainable is this? And what, where are the problems that might arise Back to that idea of like, we want to use this stuff to see where the red flags are. What are the problems that might arise through a Monte Carlo simulation to go, oh crap, if all this stuff happens at the same time, um, I might not be able to pull that money out of my Roth and I'm going to really take a digger on taxes that year. Yeah, it seems like a Monte Carlo with a lot of different variables. I mean, you've got what money's coming in and out, then you've got the locations, then you've got the pattern of market returns. I mean, it seems like you could run like infinite different examples of this. And you can totally paralyze yourself with it too, which is where it's, you're probably always going to take something and then like split the difference back in the other direction, right? You're like, here's the perfectly mathematically optimal way to do this per the Monte Carlo. But then you have to go, okay, what's the actual reality test of this? How do I actually do this? And that's why, that's why a lot of people end up not with a perfectly optimal mix, but the mix that fits for them. The strategy, the best strategy is the one you can stick to. And for a lot of people, that's like, okay, maybe I have my 60-40 in my taxable accounts and my 60-40 in my retirement accounts. And the only difference is I own tax-free munis for my fixed income and my taxable accounts and I own more corporate credit or high-yield bonds or private credit or something in my retirement account. This might be a dumb question, but does, does tax rates play a huge role in how you think about this? So if you've got the guy in California in the top bracket, are you thinking about this a lot more as part of his strategy than someone in Texas who's in like a low bracket who has a lot less tax consequences? Back to the PBS again and the financial planning piece. So like the guy in California who has, uh, so let's just say he he's pre-retirement. Well, that California state tax is a beat. So you got to be aware of what are the tax consequences of income and what pl planning you're doing pre-retirement. Once you cross into retirement, it's the same thing. Like, talking to a client and considering like Roth conversion in California and like all the other stuff. And you're going like, okay, let's, let's model out in these retirement years, incomes down. But if we do like a big Roth conversion, how much does that like juice taxes across the board? And what do we have to be aware of? Um, so yeah, diff different states and different cash flow needs and dependencies at different stages in your career or retirement arc all play in massively. And that's why you just kind of got to work it out with somebody on paper. How much of this is an ongoing process? Like, it seems like this definitely cannot be a set it and forget it thing, but it seems like also people could probably go crazy, like making massive changes all the time to try to like get this perfectly right. Like, how, how do you think about that balance? 
So it's definitely not set it, forget it, but it definitely, you work with somebody who understands sort of your comfort levels and tolerances around these things are. There are people that like hate tax surprises. A lot of people hate tax surprises. But pretty much everybody, like, I think. Yeah. Pretty much everybody. From our experience with our clients, like tax surprises are not good. So, so generically, nobody likes to pay taxes. <laughs> but there's the reality of paying taxes. And then it's the reality of like, where are you willing or not willing to be surprised? And how are you going to deal with the surprise? So like somebody decides they want to move and they need to buy a piece of property and they need to liquidate a taxable portfolio. And it's just like planning for that and how it happens. Your question about frequency is, I think most advisors, good advisors, are going to take the time to understand those preferences and priorities with the client. But then this is where like the annual review process is so important because it's like, okay, what are we going to need this year? What's going on in this calendar year in front of us? And I mentioned this before, it's kind of like, I think of it in like the short, medium term and short, medium and long term or the, the three buckets or... I always say it's like weather. It's like, look out the window. And if it's, if it's sunny or if it's rainy, like that probably tells you if you need an umbrella for like a quick run around the block. If you're planning the beach trip with the kids, like on the weekend, like pull the weather app up on your phone. And if you're, you know, planning a vacation to Florida, it's a lot more fun to go to Florida from, from the Northeast uh, in winter than it is in the middle of July. So like have seasonal awareness. So with this too, depending where you are, your cycle with your financial advisor, what your needs are, you should be thinking about what do I need this year? What do I need over the couple of years, especially in the period pre-post retirement where sequence of returns and sequence of withdrawal matters the most. And then like, what are we thinking long-term? Like, am I going to end up with a bunch of money possibly? And how do I want that to pass on to my kids or grandkids or charitable foundations or whatever? All right, guys. So I think this was a good discussion. Um, in summary, I think asset Location refers to the placement of assets among different types of investment accounts, whether it's taxable IRA or Roth, and how you know most people can try to minimize taxes. Um, we talked about asset location needs to be balanced with asset allocation, and in some cases, you know, you might have to compromise on one or the other if you're trying to achieve the optimal asset allocation or location. Um, taxes obviously play a significant role in asset location, as we gave the example of the investor in California. Um, and asset location is, is, it's an ongoing process that needs to be periodically reviewed and adjusted as Matt highlighted. Um, so that's sort of my main, I think, takeaways from the discussion. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed this and we will see you next time. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.